This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. In the second installment of our focus on the big issues facing education unions, we focus on union renewal. So what unions need to do is find new ways to involve, engage, connect, draw in members into the organization. My guest today is Howard Stevenson, Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at the University of Nottingham. He has researched teacher trade unions around the world to try and understand the best ways to revive the power of unions. In our conversation, he talks about his findings and contextualizes the state of education unions today. In many countries, there is a tradition of having, you know, we would call them a, a union rep in the school. In the work I've been doing, we identified that actually where that person exists, there's a very clear relationship to a much sort of stronger connection to the union and much union members. Howard Stevenson, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. Pleased to be here. So, can you give me just an, a quick overview of the state of unions today as you see them, specifically teacher unions? Okay, so teachers have high levels of union membership almost everywhere in the world. Where there are teachers and unions, you can expect the, the majority of teachers to be in unions. Uh, if you look at the sort of industrial landscape in different countries, teachers are almost always, or education workers are almost always, uh, amongst the most highly unionized. Uh, people use the phrase union density. Mm. In education, union density is often uh, amongst the highest you would find anywhere in the economy. With all the changes that there have been to, uh, to unions over recent years, changes in industrialisation, deindustrialisation, massive impact on some of the manufacturing unions. Education unions have been more robust in that sense. Membership levels have tended to hold up. So in, in some senses, they can, you know, they look like healthy organisations. And why do so many people join unions, teacher unions? Like, why is the, the density so high in this profession? I think the principal reason, particularly for teachers, and you know, we have to sometimes distinguish between people who work in different sectors, like higher education and vocational education, and, and of course the many unions represent teachers and other education support workers. But, for example, amongst teachers, often, looks different in different places, but there's a sort of strong relationship between being a member of your union and also having a sort of professional voice. So some unions grew out of being professional associations. Uh, and that, you know, teaching is an, an occupation where people feel a need to be strongly professionally connected, but also, you know, to have support for when, you know, they may experience problems. I mean, you know, it's a difficult and demanding job and teachers are exposed to some risks. So that sort of notion of it being very important to have that support and the professional connections, you put those two things together, and that's, I think, what would, would, what would often historically account for the sort of high levels of, of union uh, membership amongst teachers. Yeah, there's, sometimes there's a lot of negative stereotypes about unions and unions being problematic. So has that sort of negative stereotype impacted the way in which unions function today? There is no doubt that there is a narrative uh, presented by some very powerful interests in different parts of the world that teacher unions 
uh, you know, if we're talking about education in particular, that it is the unions that are the obstacle to reform. That you know that, that we need to change, we constantly need to be improving, and that unions are the obstacle to this. Now, now I take the view that that's a deliberately promoted discourse because actually there's an objective often amongst those people to do particular things in terms of education policy uh, to which unions are opposed. Such so as? It's, well, if you take uh, the, the ability to transfer public education into private hands to open up the possibility of making profit from education, the privatisation of public schooling, you know, there's, there are huge amounts of public money in education. There are big corporations who want part of that money. Well, in order to do that, they have to sort of dismantle the public education system. Right. Unions are an obstacle to that. So you know, one of the consequences of that is that there's a sort of narrative often promoted that unions are you know, opposed to change. I don't think unions are opposed to change at all but they're quite legitimately <laughs> oppose some of the changes that are being promoted right. in our education systems in different parts of the world and which are deeply damaging to public education. Right. Right. Uh, I think, uh, and, and, and you know, this is recognised by many public bodies, that actually if you want to do real, meaningful, positive change, then you need to work with people and actually you work with the organisations that represent their collective interests because that's the way, in a sense, to win support for the changes that you want. So, you know, like many of these issues, these things are hugely politically, in a sense, yeah. contested. It's not always framed in that way, so we just get a very crude, you know, the unions are blocking this, unions are blocking that, and of course that's a, you know, that suits those people who really want to undermine unions as the voice of the, the collective voice of teachers because actually what they want to do are make changes to the education system that are in their interest but not necessarily in the interests of um, the students who attend those public schools, for example. Right. I mean, it's, it seems as if what we're talking about is a very classic example of capital versus labor. And a lot of these sort of historically we've read about it and it might have you know, gone off from being so commonly spoken about, but in the service industry of teachers, but, you know, there's also care workers that you see these sort of, you know, very classic interests of capital trying to push out the sort of the voice of labor to marginalize labor. And sometimes that's how I, that's how I sometimes see the fight of teacher unions, even if it's not necessarily the common narrative um, that is presented. So traditionally, that sort of capital versus labor mm -hmm discourse is is not actually the way that people have talked about right. teachers and teacher unions and, and those relationships. I think it is what underpins those relationships mm. and actually now we are beginning to see that more clearly mm. because uh, actually if you if you look at those big trends in education which I think are towards privatization in terms of private companies taking, you know, increase, being responsible for more and more of the public education system. I mean, it looks, it's very complex the way it plays out, but that's a, a, a sort of phenomenon. The uh, linked notion of making even those organisations which are technically in the public sector behave like the commercial organisations working in the private sector. So, uh, you know, 
know, in, in different parts of the world, we might call them charter schools or we might call them academy schools, uh, whatever it is, these are organisations that are in a sense being encouraged to behave as business organisations. And the people who lead them, in a sense, have the same imperatives. They want to get as much as they can out of their workforce and they want to do it for the least possible cost because uh, you know, if they can drive the cost down, then maybe they can do other things with the, the money that they save. So if you're a teacher or an education worker in those establishments, actually what you experience is an employer who wants you to uh, really work harder, <laughs> be more productive, generate greater output. And get paid less. That's not, the, that's not the language of education, but of mm. course, when we think about standardised testing, what is that other than actually a way of sort of measuring the quantity and quality of the output? The employer wants to drive that up and wants to do it really for the least possible mm. cost. And to an education worker, that's the classic situation that makes them actually no different to the factory worker or exactly. the train driver or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah. There's a, it's an employment relationship and actually it's, it's underpinned by an exploitative relationship. Right, and it's very which, which is why, Which is why unions need to have that sort of collective yeah. voice to be able to uh, represent teachers uh, and education workers' interests. So basically, in I mean, you're saying, in short, that we should be quite skeptical when we see Pearson's proposing a particular sort of reforms, or Microsoft and Bill Gates proposing a particular set of reforms. That the, the initial assumption should be skeptical. Uh, these are business organizations who, uh, well, you know, they exist to make profit. That is what they exist to do. They'll say that they, you know, exist to provide a service, but actually their sort of core motivation is the profit motive. And, uh, you know, if you're a tech company, uh, I don't doubt that you're looking at all sorts of ways that you can uh, replace labour with mm -hmm. technology. That's a sort of classic uh, tailorist notion of production. If you can uh, cheapen the labour process, if you can find uh, a way of making labour costs lower, and, and of course in what we might call you know, the service sector industries, labour costs are always a high proportion mm. of the total costs. So the attraction of driving those costs down, if actually what you want to do is to make a profit for your tech company, or if you're a, uh, the private owner of a private school, you want to drive the cost down to increase yeah, your profits, yeah, right. then technology might look like it offers some sort of superficial answer. I think there's enormous risks from that, huge things that we should be concerned about, but those pressures are there. They're, they're, they're going to be there in the system. You know, teachers experience them now, and I think that's going to intensify. And in a sense, I, part of what I've been arguing about union renewal is that uh, the threats to teachers, the challenges to teachers, uh, you know, the, the pressures that they face, are intensifying. They're, mm. they're, they're getting greater and greater. That you know, that drive to lower costs, drive up output. There are threats potentially from technology and all of these things. Technology can be marvellous, but it's a significant threat. I think in the education system, if used wrongly or, or introduced for the wrong reasons. Right. Technology for what end? Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, 
these challenges to teachers and to educators are increasing and in a sense unions have to be able to respond to that but they only have limited resources mm. so in a sense the dilemma at the moment is that the demands on teachers are increasing the pressures on teachers are increasing therefore the demands and pressures on unions to respond are increasing but they only have limited resources so what can they do how can unions begin to renew and revive and actually protect and promote teachers and students the interests of teachers and students so unions have to look to find the resource that in a sense can help them respond to right. that growing pressure. And my argument is that that resource is in the union already and it's its members. So what unions need to do is find new ways to involve, engage, connect, draw in members into the organisation so that they act collectively. Because it's, you know, renewal is the, the rediscovery <laughs> <laughs> of the basic trade union principle of workers working together to prosecute their interests. And um, in a sense that I think the imperative to sort of rediscover that is, is, is now much greater than it's ever been because of those, the, the way those challenges are developing. Right. So it sort of compels unions, I think, to rethink uh, how they work and how they organise in order to make sure that are not drawing on, on their members in a sort of, I don't know, a transactional sort of sense, but it's rediscovering the notion that education workers need to act together in order to be able to push back effectively against some of these challenges and to then be able to sort of frame policy debate, debates much more positively for themselves. So what would that actually look like, say, in a school? Like, what practical things could a union do for a specific school and to, to renew and revive unions themselves. Right, so I think there's sort of two notions here. Uh, the, the danger is that we, we talk about renewal as almost purely a sort of technical process, right, right. you know, uh, do a bit more of this, do a bit right, more of yeah. that. Uh, people will get involved if they see the union making a difference. Hmm. So there's two things in this sense. The union has to make a difference on issues that matter to teachers and the union has to give people a way in to, uh, to participate in that process. So um, the example of a school I think is an interesting example because part of what I've been arguing in the work I've been doing more recently is that the key to union renewal lies in, as it were, reinvigorating union uh, presence in the workplace. because. It's in my workplace that most of the decisions that really affect my work are made, right? Now, of course, some of the big ticket issues like pay and pensions may well be decided at national level, right? Fair enough. A lot of decisions are made in my own workplace. And, you know, if I feel that those decisions are not ones that I agree with, do I have the capacity to challenge those decisions? Do I have the ability to organise my work in a way that as a professional I think is most appropriate. And I think uh, part of this challenge for teachers currently is that less and less is it the case mm. that people feel that they have that autonomy in their work. And so what the union can do is get people to you know, draw together, identify what the issues are and collectively raise those concerns, hopefully have them addressed. But if not, you know, think about well, what else is it that we do? 
But by organising at that level, at that sort of workplace level, where people then see, teachers and education workers, see the union as the vehicle to make the difference that they want in their working lives. Right. Uh, and, that, and that then becomes making the union sort of something live in the workplace. What that requires is some active, visible union presence. Like among the staff of a particular school. And of course, in many, in many countries, but by no means all, but in many countries, there is a tradition of having, you know, we would call them a, a union rep in the school. Right. Or, An advocate but, or a... But somebody who is an uh, ordinary union member, to use that phrase, an ordinary member of staff, but they are the representative of their colleagues on union issues right. in the school. Right. And uh, in the work I've been doing, and, and more recently with a, a, a colleague of mine, Emily Winship, we identified that actually where that person exists, there's a very clear relationship to a much sort of stronger connection to the union amongst union members. Right. So where you have that workplace presence, where that workplace rep exists, where ideally that person has the confidence and the capacity to actively raise issues, then that makes a real difference yeah. to how people in workplaces see, feel and experience the union. It becomes sort of much easier to them feel like you belong to the union. And of course, when you do that, then actually when you want to take, for example, you know, action on the big issues like pay, it becomes easier because people feel, feel connected. They're connected, they belong, they feel part of the union, yeah. they understand that notion of taking collective action to win things. Right. Uh, Not some abstract concept, it's in the everyday life no, and of I the teachers. I think, we, well, I think we have, and that's absolutely the point, we have to sort of make this real in mm. the workplace. So that actually, you know, being a member of the union is a key sort of part of my professional identity. Right. Not just a newsletter that you get in your email or, you know, you see the president on the TV. Yeah, and, and, and what our research shows is that those sort of union figures are not really known by the members. Right. But if there's somebody in their workplace, it's their colleague, they yeah. teach down their corridor, you know? Yeah. That makes a world of difference. Yeah, actually. it's like mundane unionism or something. So, and, and where, but where the union can really right make exactly, and that's where yeah. It makes so sense. so my argument to some of the unions I've been working with is uh, what our research shows is that that person existing is a sort of key determinant in in whether the wider membership feel that they belong to the union, feel engaged, feel connected, where that person exists, and the point is, you know, unions can influence that. Hmm. They can recruit more of these people, they can support them, they can develop them, uh, you know, they can help them to be sort of more effective in that representational role. Uh, and I think that's a sort of key priority uh, for unions, is to build up the union at that workplace level. And it looks very different in different sectors, you know, I've worked in schools, I've worked in universities, Different contexts, uh, different countries. It's, 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 there are some countries where that sort of concept is not one that they yeah. would sort of recognise. Yeah. But the principle, I think, still right. fundamentally applies. Mm. And I will always remember uh, being somewhere deep in Nairobi, uh, doing some work with the Kenyan Teachers Union, the KNUT. And you know what the person said to me was, you know, we recognised we had to take the union into the staff room. We, you know, we understood 
they've been involved in a big industrial uh, action campaign, and uh, you know there was a sort of lot of high-level pronouncements about things. What they learned from that dispute was the need to take the union into the staff room. It's a nice and, way to and, think about it. And, and, and you know, whatever that looks like in different places, I think that principle is actually really important. Right. That it's something, right, you know, what's the fundamental issue that unions are involved in? It's about work. Yeah. <laughs> in my workplace, if, it's, if unions are about work and I can't see the union in my workplace, it's there's a disconnect. A, there's, a, there's, a, there's a disconnect, and that's yeah. you know, a sort of really critical issue to, uh, to address, I think. And we started this conversation talking about some of these sort of negative narratives that sort of prevail when it comes to unions and teacher unions, and, and they are being perpetuated by particular interests, as we've talked about. But how do we create new narratives, different narratives, a different discourse to, to even see unions that then can address issues that actually perhaps matter more? Right. So in some of the work that I've done for Education International, one of the things that we were arguing is the need to sort of build the union at that most basic level in the workplace. But the other thing we were arguing is that what unions also need to do is almost at completely the opposite end, be working at a very high level to be shaping debates about education policy more widely. Uh, because of course, the sort of policy solutions that we get exist within a sort of set of parameters, a sort of set of discourses, if you like, within which problems are defined in particular ways and then the solutions that are generated sit within those problems. Now, sometimes those problems are defined in ways that we wouldn't agree with at all. But of course, there are very powerful interests that promote some of those narratives. Uh, Stephen Ball uh, used the phrase, the discourse of derision, to describe the sort of drip, drip uh, media coverage, political speech, which basically is saying you know, public education is broken, it has to be fit, public is bad, private is good, what we need is these sort of radical market solutions. So this is what we sort of mean by this, this discourse and this narrative. And of course, you know, there are powerful interests able to promote these. The media is that obvious example, but there are others as well. I think one of the problems that we face currently is that the spaces to present counter-narratives are often actually being undermined. So. You know, I work in the UK. Teacher education has been progressively moved more towards a sort of school-based model and away from universities. Universities are still involved, but the sorts of teacher education programmes available today look very different to ones in the past. And one of the consequences, one of the changes that we see is there's much less discussion about what I think are sort of the big questions in education. There's much less discussion about the history of education. There's much less discussion about the philosophy of education. There's much more about the sort of technical questions right. about how do I manage this classroom. Now, how you manage a classroom is really, really important, right? right. You know, I've been a teacher. I'm not underestimating for one minute the importance of those issues. But the danger is that we reduce the training of teachers to a very sort of technical process which actually has to be located in a wider understanding of what education is for and its yeah. purposes and, yeah. and you know, they're very different sort of perspectives that we have on these issues. I mean, the philosophy of education, I mean, that idea of the value of education is so deeply debated, even if it might be the predominant way of seeing it as for a future job. But really, there's all sorts of ways to think about the value of education. If you don't have that grounding in philosophy, you're and not so, talking about and it. And so, uh, I think, actually, I don't know whether this sounds conspiratorial or whatever, <laughs> but 
there's been a deliberate closing down of the spaces in which those sorts of discussions are had. And people training to be teachers, for example, are exposed to less of those sorts of debates. And there's a sort of just, you know, get on with the job rather than ask big questions about why you're doing the job in the way that you're doing it. Uh, and that's the, you know, that's the point I'm making about the sort of narrative right, framing right, right. because actually, you know, if the only issue that you're being allowed to discuss is how best do I meet the requirements of the, uh, you know, the ministry inspectors, right. then it becomes a very technical question about how to do this or how to do that. Yeah. And of course, what you're not doing at all is asking wider questions about what is education for, who benefits from the education that we have, who is being badly served by it. Uh, you know, what's the uh, impact of what we do on the most disadvantaged communities, for example, most vulnerable people in society? Is education uh, reducing these inequalities, or actually, uh, is education increasing them? Because it can do. Mm. And often we don't really open these things up to proper debate. I think the spaces for those debates are actually being deliberately closed down. So I think unions need to be shifting those debates, but also need to recognise that they are a key space to open those discussions up. Right. Reframe, ask new questions, debate. Because they're independent, democratic, collective organisations. They're not open to sort of co-option in a way that other spaces where these discussions were taking place are. you know, I work in a university, I've said, uh, you know, there's a set of regulations about how that works, which means that, you know, those courses now look very different to what they did before. We don't have that autonomy because there's an inspection system that says, you know, how we must train teachers, and that's what those right. courses have to look like. Unions have the independence and the space to be able to uh, develop these counter-narratives. So I think unions have a particular responsibility to lead the discussions and the debates about the importance of public education uh, that is about developing citizens, critical citizens for a democratic society uh, and which is committed to social justice. Sort of, you know, fundamental questions about values. Now, not all unions would necessarily see themselves as engaged in that sort of work. I think it's absolutely the work that they need to be involved in. Because if they're not doing it, it's often really difficult to see where that takes place. And then it gets co-opted by all these other interests. And they, you know, they are enormously powerful. Mm. They are enormously powerful. And then when the debate is framed in particular ways, it becomes really difficult to challenge it. So. You know, reframing these narratives is not easy work at all. It's sort of long and it's slow, but it's absolutely essential work. And uh, you know, I said earlier on, and uh, that uh, you know, this was the sort of high-level stuff. But to sort of almost sort of bring it back down to that where we started talking about the workplace representation, I think actually uh, a really important part of this is it's about recognising the importance of educating people and so you know we need to educate the wider public but there's also an important job unions need to do about educating their own members Uh, and as education unions and education workers education is what we do we ought to be really good at it so I think uh, when I you know when I'm thinking increasingly about union renewal uh, 
I'm recognising more and more, I think, the importance of that sort of educative work within unions amongst their own members to both uh, give them the confidence to speak back, but also the, you know, the understanding of the issues which allows people to see you know, where the current injustices are and how actually things might look different. Well, Howard Stevenson, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Howard Stevenson is Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at the University of Nottingham. Today's episode was put together in collaboration with Education International. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. FreshEd's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.